the utilities benefit from the energy transition because they are the providers of the power. Industrials benefit because they manage what that power does. I would say 90% of companies are very responsive to investors' requests. They have historically avoided emphasizing achievements, which is not aligned with the more conservative management style. Hello, what do green hydrogen, shy CEOs and an historic investment opportunity have in common? Well, they all feature in Fidelity International's first ever ESG analyst survey. 151 of our analysts across the globe, and you've just heard a couple of them there, answered questions about the sustainable credentials of the companies they cover. What opportunities does the energy transition away from fossil fuels offer? Where are companies least likely to boast publicly about their environmental policies? And where can investors be most confident in bringing about change? In this inaugural report, we hear from the analysts on these and many more critical questions relevant to sustainable investing. I'm Richard Edgar, and in this podcast, I'll be asking my guests to explain the most significant and eyebrow-raising results. Listen on to find out more. With me to take us uh, through all of this and explain some of the key findings are George Watson, the editor of the survey, Gita Bell, Global Head of Research for Fixed Income, and Terry Raven, Director of Equities in Europe. Welcome to you all. Hello. George, this is the first ESG analyst survey, as I said. It follows in the footsteps of our already well-established annual analyst survey. Briefly, tell us how it works. So each year for about the last 11 years, we ask our analysts around 40 questions on a range of topics about the companies that they cover. Um, And so topics include management sentiment, balance sheets, um, cost inflation, all the way up to broader sort of industry trends. Uh, For a number of years, we've had an ESG section in that annual survey, uh, and recently we felt that ESG is becoming important enough to the companies that we cover and for our clients to merit its own survey, which has given us the chance to ask a much broader and deeper range of ESG questions. And Gita, why is a survey like this important? It's critical for us to understand not only where our companies have been, but where they're going. I think what we found in recent years is that ESG has become so important to so many companies that we now need to have much more granular information on what's important, which elements of ESG should be our focus, where do we need to engage better with companies, and that's what this survey results provided. And Terry, just building on that, because it also allows us to compare and contrast between different companies, different um, sectors, different um, regions in a, in a quantifiable way. That must be quite a powerful tool for you. Hugely powerful. And I think uh, George and Geeta are actually being somewhat polite. I think this is, you know, internally, this will really enable us to direct and focus our engagement efforts going forward to really test and challenge those investee companies on areas where we think there are currently shortfalls. And frankly, to an external audience, we'd like to see this as a bit of a call to arms. Sustainable investing today is investing, and we want other vested interest groups and stakeholders to use this survey, take the learnings from it and apply that because this is a challenge that we're all in together. A call to arms indeed. Okay, well, the headline story from this survey hones in on the global energy transition. That's the enormous shift that all sectors and countries have to perform as we move from a world fueled by carbon to one driven by clean or renewable energy. Now, George, you asked the analysts what this revolution means for their companies, specifically how they weigh the risks and the opportunities in relation to the transition. And uh, what did they come back with? Well, there's an interesting story to this question, actually. 
Um, when we set about to design questions in either the ESG survey or the annual survey, we, we start with a theory which we then seek to prove or disprove with the question. Uh, for this one, the theory was that the, the risks from the transition to a low carbon economy were, were much more broadly spread than just the sectors that would first come to mind, such as energy or materials. And it was only really at the last minute where we, we thought perhaps it'd be interesting to have a parallel question with the same wording, um, which focused on the opportunities, because we thought, well, there must be some opportunities there. Um, so it's, it's quite exciting to report that on a global level, um, four out of 10 of our analysts report that there are significant opportunities for their companies from this energy transition. And then compared to that with analysts seeing significant risks, there were only three in 10. So that's a tipping point. The great energy transition um, offers more opportunities than it does risk. Am I interpreting that correctly? Yes, on a global level. Now, obviously, there is some sector and regional variation. I'm not going to give you any points for, for guessing the sector that has the most significant risks from the energy transition, which, uh, which is obviously the energy sector. Um, but there are other sectors such as industrials, materials, where I think it's about half of our analysts say that there are significant risks to their companies. Now, looking at the opportunities, it's the utility sector that comes out on top. Um, every single one of our utilities analysts say that there are significant opportunities from the energy transition. Um, and again, some of those other heavy sort of heavy industry sectors, such as materials and industrials, slightly more analysts say that there are significant opportunities than risks in those sectors. Okay, well, before I come to Geeta and Terry for a little bit more on that, let's hear from the first of our analysts, uh, Alex Lane, who has experience of two of the sectors that George just mentioned, industrials and utilities. Here's what he had to say. The utilities benefit from the energy transition because they are the providers of the power and the industrials benefit from the energy transition because they manage what that power does. Utilities, for example, are seeing very significant investments on the renewable side. You know, thermal power is being replaced increasingly by wind and, and solar. Nuclear, as well as, as governments phase out that technology, particularly in Europe. And on the industrial side, the, the products that they supply enable and benefit from the energy transition. So whether that be electrical products in terms of managing those flows or, or indeed products such as electrolysis, which will manufacture the green hydrogen in future, uh, or the wind turbines that, that will power the, uh, the transition. The biggest challenges facing utilities is almost certainly the, the need to ensure a good return on these investments. The amount of capital in the space is, is pretty significant. And at the moment, we don't have clarity on a number of big swing factors such as long-term power prices. And on the industrial side, one has to be careful about how quickly maybe these, these markets that products will play into will, will develop. So Siemens Energy is, is building an electrolysis business and it doesn't yet know how big the hydrogen market will be in the future and how much demand there will be for electrolysis. So the risk that that capital is, is misdeployed in the near term is, is definitely sizable. Industrials and Utilities Analyst Alex Lang. Now, Geet and Terry, what message should companies and investors take from these findings? I think companies and investors need to take first and foremost that the requirement to address climate change is in fact a requirement. The consequences of not doing things um, are simply too catastrophic to, to contemplate. And as a result, 
you know, Alex is absolutely right. Um, there is the risk always that, that capital gets misdeployed and that, that new technologies do not result in kind of the outcomes that we want. But we need to keep trying all of the different things that are available to us such that we ensure that we actually have a solution over the long term. So that's the, the urgency behind it. Terry, what about this sense of opportunity that, uh, that George was talking about as well? Yes, Richard, I was going to say, actually, they should take heart in the first instance because the opportunities that we identify are greater than the risks. But that doesn't mean they can rest on their laurels. They, too, have to act. We see their emission reduction targets as not as ambitious as they need to be. We need to see more companies making bolder and bigger statements and holding themselves, i.e. the C-suite and the board, accountable for that. And they need to be investing in new technologies and using uh, incremental regulations that are coming along as both a carrot and a stick. And opportunities in most sectors, but not for energy. What do the analysts say about where that sector goes from here? The, uh, the, the very obvious bad boy that George was talking about right at the beginning of all of this. Indeed, well, it, it is the sector that we've identified as having the most risks and challenges. And, and when you have bodies like the IEA stepping up and saying that energy companies shouldn't invest in greenfield oil and gas exploration, then you know, that gives us a sense of the pressure that they're under. The phase out of fossil fuels could arguably mean lots of stranded assets for them. And they are having to you know, take their heads out of the sand, which arguably they were doing uh, through some part of last year and start to. And now we can see that they're starting to make more significant strides. They have started to make more substantive commitments to reduce their scope one, two, three um, emissions. They, are, they do need to continue to drive more efficiency through their operations. And they do actually need to look much more creatively to reorient their businesses to more sustainable trajectories. Now, it won't be easy. A lot of capital will be required. A lot of capital will be, need, need to be redirected. Um, but these companies do have uh, broad project development, large um, technology capabilities. And if they put their minds to it and governments and investors don't vilify them for it, then that ability to regenerate themselves is there for those that want to be forward thinking. Akita, one of the advantages of this um, survey is that we're able to cut the data in different ways. So uh, we can look at sectors, obviously, um, globally, but we can also break down the results um, by region. And on a regional basis, um, it's a similar story to the sectors. Analysts think that most places have got more opportunities than risk, apart from EMEA and Latin America. So emerging Europe, Middle East and Africa and Latin America. Why, why is that? I, I think it's the same energy story that, that Terry and others have already talked about. I mean, many of these economies are highly geared to the energy sector. And so similarly, they're going to see um, risks at this present time outweighing opportunities. I think that's natural um, at this stage. But I think just as there are companies that have opportunities in in the energy sector, just as we think there are things that, that the energy sector can do to transition, these um, countries and, and regions of the world can do, can do the same. And any other interesting sectors, uh, Terry? Well, if we are to get to a net zero world and achieve the Paris Agreement Accords, you know, every sector has to act. The implications of what we're saying in this survey and more generally the push to, towards 2050 and net zero, every industry is going to have to evolve. 
but some ones that clearly stand out. The auto industry and, for, for example, how they uh, produce electric vehicles, otherwise all known as EVs, Transport accounts for 15% of greenhouse gas emissions today. And obviously, if we can make a dent into that, that will be you know, a good step towards the Paris Accords. In agriculture, another sector that accounts for 18% of greenhouse gases, we need to take on more sustainable farming methods. We need to reforest, look to uh, use wood to substitute in for plastic and in building projects. And technology and IT, an industry which transcends every part of, of those other industries and sectors we talk about, a huge role to play in terms of providing the software and the tools to enable other industries to, do the, to take these initiatives efficiently. So this leaves no sector uh, untouched. There's an awful lot to do. Lots of exciting possibilities within that. But um, I suppose we shouldn't get too carried away because there are some doubts about how much companies are ready to invest in the transition. George, can you tell us a little bit more about that? I think this is a time when a lot of regions and companies are beginning to make net zero pledges, but often these are decades in the future, but perhaps they, they require action now. So we asked our analysts um, about CapEx spend in the coming year. We asked them both what they think would be required to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement and, and what they expect to be committed to the energy transition to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement. And on a global level, we find that just under a quarter of corporate capex um, is required to be committed to this energy transition. And the actual level that our analysts expect to be spent on that is, is coming at about six percentage points lower. So it, it is a little bit below it. It's not, it's not a huge gap. Um, the notable regions in that include EMEA and Latin America we've just spoken about, um, which has the biggest gap between the capex required and the capex which is going to be spent in the coming year, um, all the way down to China on the other end of the scale, which has the smallest gap, um, only about three percentage points um, between what is going to be required and what is expected. Okay, well, we're going to get, hear a little bit more detail about that um, with some comments from our materials analyst, Lulu Zhong, who's in Toronto. So I cover precious metal space in, in Canada. Uh, so most of my companies are gold and silver producers. I would say 90% of the companies, they haven't set a net zero carbon neutral goal. Only the leaders in the space are kind of on the right path towards that. For example, uh, Bering and Nickel, they use solar to generate the power instead of uh, using diesel in their own operations. Perhaps like 15% of the company uh, are trying to explore solar plants. Another approach uh, some of the, the players are exploring is to use EV trucks to truck the ore instead of using the diesel trucks. This is a little bit tougher, especially for the underground mine. So I would say perhaps only uh, 10% of the producer are on this track. If the government can have more punitive measures to regulate the industry, to make sure the companies are be more carbon neutral, that would be very helpful. The other way is to, from the investment point of view, uh, to push the company. I would say 90% of the companies are very responsive to investors' requests because they want to stay relevant and investable. And then I would say perhaps like 20% of the companies are proactively working with the government, not only just to comply with the current regulation, but also try to explore alternative ways to use renewable energy uh, so that they uh, potentially could also get a tax rebate. 
Lulu Zhang, our colleague in Toronto, speaking there. Now, Gita, the results of this question are a snapshot. It doesn't take into account how companies might shift their CapEx plans in future. But there does seem to be a significant disconnect. So I think the first thing to take into consideration is that we have never done this before as a planet, as a set of industries, as a set of asset managers. So the, the calculations of what CapEx is required and and we simply don't know and that that is part of the issue here. Um, I think the second issue that we have to keep in mind is that as the investor community continues to ramp up the pressure in terms of ESG, as they continue to demand more um, in terms of climate action and demand it in a more urgent and not, you know, a 10-year plan or a 15-year plan or whatever it is, um, I think that the CapEx will in fact follow and companies will respond and invest in the things that their investors deem to be important. So I think that, yes, there's still a gap. I think we we absolutely have to address it. But I do think that efforts like this survey and, and more ongoing communications with the investor community will get us there. The gap, though, when George was taking us through the, um, the numbers, uh, Terry, the gap in China is relatively small. Why, why is that? Um, even if, as Gita says, everyone will catch up eventually, um, why is China best placed at the moment? And to the reader of the the survey, this will may stand out as something of a paradox, especially as you know, we know that Chinese greenhouse emissions are going to keep going up through um, much of the the twenty twenties. If we'd asked these questions of our analysts twelve months ago, I think we would have got a very different answer. I think the picture today, though, is is very different, and and that's really for one major reason: President Xi Jinping standing up in September and basically committing the Chinese economy to be net zero by 2060 was really a landmark event. And not only is that a statement, the intent behind that statement has also been built upon with the release of the 14th five-year plan in March. In that plan, that requires, or that has set legal targets for the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions per unit of GDP. And the ability for China as a command and control economy to drive its state-owned enterprises, to have these legal requirements. And the fact that it is actually a leader in many of the clean tech industries that we really want to encourage has and will give significant impetus to Chinese CapEx spend over the coming months and years. And I think this is recognised by our Chinese analysts that they are seeing this groundswell of activity. And that's really why in the next 12 months, they are seeing firsthand this capex come through it's the power of policy particularly when it's a very clear uh, message from uh, from the leadership not always the, the the case in in other countries but um, i want to turn to a different aspect now because what companies say they're doing on esg on sustainable issues and what's actually happening on the ground is a fundamental issue for our analysts and their job is to find out the truth. But that's not always easy. So, George, how do we tackle that question in the survey? Well, this was a very interesting and slightly delicate question, I think. Um, as you mentioned, as ESG becomes a more and more important um, decision-making factor for investors and, and consumers as well, um, there's obviously an incentive for companies to present their ESG credentials in the in the best possible light. In much the same way, there is an incentive to present their business strategy or products in the best possible light. Um, so we asked our analysts whether they think the ESG image their companies promote matches their actions. 
Somewhat encouragingly, um, about half of our analysts say that their company's ESG promotions do in fact match their actions. Um, although of the remaining half of our analysts, the significant majority say that companies do overpromote their ESG credentials, um, leaving about one in 10 analysts who say that their companies in fact underpromote their ESG credentials. And for shorthand, we're calling the overpromoting green washing and underpromoting green blushing. Nice little term there. Um, who are the worst offenders? So on a regional basis, the the worst offenders were North America and, and probably quite surprisingly Europe, which is is often seen as quite a forward-thinking uh, region on ESG matters. Um, on a sector level, um, it's probably, again, no surprise to see energy is very near the top of the pile. Perhaps more surprising to see uh, healthcare also with a high proportion of analysts saying their companies tend to over-promote their ESG image. And the, the other side of this, the under-promoting or the green blushing, who are shrinking violets? Oh, Japan is really the standout here. Um, I, I think around a third of our Japan analysts say that companies under-promote the ESG uh, credentials that their actions would justify. Okay, well, uh, obviously we want to know why. And we've asked our analyst Karen Smiljadi, who's based in Tokyo, and she's got a real-world example of green blushing, which she found at NOF, the chemicals group. But first she explains some of the cultural variations that might lead a company in that country to be reticent about its sustainability practices. Japanese companies in general tend to be conservative and humble they have historically avoided emphasizing achievements, which is not aligned with the more conservative management style, and will also not publish nor commit to a target unless they know for sure uh, that they can achieve it. Language barrier can also be an issue. For many of the smaller Japanese companies, they still do not widely publish their results in English. This makes covering Japanese companies harder, and as a result, Japanese companies are often unintentionally penalized. NOF is a company with good ESG and business credentials. However, it was rated poorly by a well-known ESG rating agency because it didn't disclose its sustainability credentials effectively. During the course of our engagement with the company, we specifically identified the reluctance of top management to be vocal about sustainability and lack of publicly pronounced targets as the reasons for its low ESG scores. We felt that the company was committed to addressing these issues and that positive action will help to redress its valuation discount and low ESG rating. NOF positively surprised us and the market by announcing a constructive midterm plan and later on by publishing its first integrated report which reflected all our sustainability recommendations. By releasing more information on its sustainability, explicitly stating emissions targets and publishing more reasonable midterm targets, it addressed key risk for investors. Karen's Muljadi in Tokyo there, and it sounds like it's a, something that's quite easy to fix with um, better disclosure, Terry, but why do you think there are um, different behaviours in different parts of the world as, as measured by the analysts? Well, Richard, you hit on a, a very uh, interesting point there. Getting industry-grade data for all regions where we can really have that comparability 
um, is something that we are still grappling with and trying to push industry and other stakeholders to to deliver. And, And lots of other bodies are working along that trajectory also. But I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there is a spectrum in terms of the degree of scrutiny that uh, investee companies have been put, been put under in the past and are being put under today. Somewhere like Europe, where ESG has been is very well established, where there are lots of vested interest groups, the scrutiny on European corporates is very high and any claim that they make has to be extremely well substantiated. In other regions, that degree of scrutiny may not yet be there, and therefore claims do need to be challenged, and and the way to do that is to improve the data that we have. Okay, and we heard Karen's talk there about her engagement with NOF. It's a question for both you and Geeta, actually, but I'm going to ask you first of all, Terry, what does engagement actually involve? I imagine it might be slightly different for you, Geeta, but first of all, Terry... For our analysts, it's about getting out and meeting and engaging with our investee companies, developing those relationships, becoming a trusted partner of the corporates that they are analysing and investing in, and really becoming somebody that the companies feel comfortable being challenged by, but also actually being challenged back by the companies as to how far they should be pushing the envelope in sustainability. We want to be a voice and we are a voice that corporates come to and a trusted voice that we will be there in three years' time, in five years' time, in 10 years' time, having those conversations and continuing to push the sustainability envelope. But Terry, yours are equity analysts and have a continuing relationship with um, the, the company. Geeta, how does it work in fixed income? Because once a bond is issued, it's issued. We have a cross-asset collaborative approach to ESG. Our equity analysts and our fixed income analysts work hand in glove and, and, and also work with, with our sustainability team um, in interpreting the ESG credentials of, of all of our investee companies. Um, what is different is um, potentially the way in which we engage with companies. We have a far more um, active new issue market than there is an IPO market. And every single new issue roadshow that a company goes on is an opportunity to engage with that company on a given ESG topic. And that's how we treat it. Um, It may not be that you get to go through a comprehensive full engagement like you would do in the ordinary course of your your analytical job, but but you can clearly hone in on on individual um, topics in in those engagements. I think the other thing that's different about um, fixed income is the significant um, rise and continued increase in um, green bonds, in sustainable bonds, in social bonds, which are giving um, analysts the opportunity to focus on specific target areas for whoever those issuers would be. Um, And look, I think while our analyst survey is very focused on um, corporates, we also have to remember that uh, around the world, we are looking in other asset classes and in other types of areas at ESG credentials. We're doing it um, in our emerging market sovereign area. We're looking at it in real estate. We're looking at it in multi-asset. They may not be captured in this survey, but but we really do need to have a comprehensive approach. No heart untouched. Now, you talked about the topics that the analysts um, are covering. Um, They gave us a a, a flavour of the the topics that are moving up the agenda for them. Um, Can you run through those? 
we focused a lot of time on our, our discussion today on climate, but there are other areas that are emerging as key focus areas for our analysts and their engagements. One that I'd like to highlight is um, the impact of biodiversity. I think a lot of us talk about the climate crisis that we're um, facing in this world, but, but I think the biodiversity crisis is, is equally important. Um, and, and we're seeing an increasing level of engagement from our analysts with their investee companies on biodiversity as a topic. Um, separately, I think COVID has really brought up questions around not just the climate crisis, but also around treatment of employees in, um, in different companies and in supply chains. It's no longer just about how you treat your own employees, but what are you doing for your suppliers? How do you hold them to the same standards that you're holding yourself to? How about your distributors? How can you really um, emphasize your sustainability credentials with them? And so these are two areas where I think we're seeing a lot more focus from our analyst team. And, and Richard, picking up on a social element, hot off the press today, we've sent a letter out to all our Japanese investee companies asking them to set more diverse boards and have more diverse management and to really ask them to target the number of uh, female employees that they have within their employee base. And we will be continuing to measure Japanese corporates on their progress. We have set targets for 2022 and out to 2030, and we'll be measuring their progress against those. So, George, um, we, we asked something on this uh, area as well of how we engage with uh, with companies. So Terry's talking there about a letter going out. Um, what, what else uh, do we do and um, how effective are they? Uh, we asked a couple of quite interesting questions about collaborative engagement. Um, collaborative engagements are sort of when investors group together to further a specific um, ESG agenda, uh, such as Climate Action 100 or um, the awareness of the seafarers crisis, which our company was uh, involved in last year. Um, what we found is that around half of the analysts um, think that collaborative engagement is usually about as effective as one-to-one -one engagement. But again, the the remainder of analysts, it, um, it skews quite heavily towards thinking collaborative engagement is, is more effective than one-to-one -one engagement. In tandem with this, we asked them how common collaborative engagement was in their sectors, and only about 15% of analysts rated collaborative engagement as common. There are definitely loads of circumstances that where one-to-one -one engagement um, is more effective or collaborative engagement is not a blanket thing, but the results do, do sort of hint at the fact that maybe there is an opportunity in certain circumstances to, to use collaborative engagement um, more. So working with other um, asset managers. Um, Terry, why do you think um, it's not so common uh, at the moment? I, in regions where there has been a long history of uh, ESG uh, scrutiny, such as Europe, there are lots of vested interests uh, bodies which are prepared to engage investors and, and the reverse of that, investors reaching out to vested interests to enable these collaborative engagements. So there is just more of a, a, a focus on that type of engagement um, in other regions, such as North America and Japan, we've identified cultural and practical reasons why collaborative engagements may not be the best way to go and could indeed lead to detrimental outcomes. These could be issues such as cross-holdings. It could be uh, the need to save face uh, and, and to not take an engagement uh, into a too aggressive format. 
ESG may be more too nascent in that region, or the underlying investors that we would look to to be involved in a collaborative engagement may have very different time horizons, and therefore that's driving very different incentives. Gita, I can see you nodding at that. Um, does it chime from a fixed income point of view? Uh, absolutely. I think that generally collaborative engagement, we can all see the power of, of multiple investors coming to a single company and suggesting that they, they take a different path forward or, or improve their, their efforts on, on various ESG um, metrics. But we also need to not lose sight of the fact that different asset managers are natural rivals for each other, and they're not used to collaborating with each other in a lot of these these formats. So I think that we really need to to start separating um, kind of that natural rivalry from the urgency of the problem we need to address. And I think as Terry's highlighted, um, groups like Climate Action 100, groups that are set up that are not individual to a given asset manager are probably the right way to kind of take that collective action. Um, And I personally am really looking forward to seeing uh, next year's ESG analyst survey to see how this develops over the following year, because I think we're going to see tremendous change in this area. And Terry, you were talking earlier about China and how once policy um, kicked in, um, everyone there jumped to, and you can see the the rapid pace of change in China on on ESG. Um, What are the other carrots and sticks that work um, in different parts of the world? Well, clearly, regulation can play a large part. Um, I think there has to be carrot and stick to that to any regulatory change because one, just one or the other will not get us to where we need to get to. Um, it is the for companies individually, it would be the ability to um, incentivize their own management teams to uh, be more geared into sustainable objectives and sustainable outcomes. Um, we've talked about the collaborative engagement piece. Um, COP26 later this year will provide a great springboard for many of these initiatives. And I'd expect many of our investee companies to be making greater claims and holding themselves more to account on the back of those forthcoming meetings. And George, there were, there were nuances, weren't there, between the E, the S and the G of um, uh, which one seemed to, to work best? That's right. Overall, our analysts said that investor engagement was most important driving change in governance, um, whereas regulation was the top factor driving change in environmental and social factors. With Well, investor engagement was, was number two. Um, and, and the responses that we had for our, from our analysts um, sort of centered around the fact that um, to drive environmental and social change is often a, a very long time horizon, whereas governance changes you know, you can tell whether the board has been changed. It's quite easy to measure and it's quite short to enact, whereas not all investors have 10, 20-year time horizons that kind of need to keep the pressure on to, to really drive those um, ENS changes. And we've been talking a lot, uh, almost exclusively actually, about um, engagement in this conversation. So where um, we go and, or the analysts go and talk to um, the, uh, the, the companies. But the ultimate sanction if a company isn't behaving as Fidelity thinks it ought to, is to divest, to sell out of that company. Um, which is, uh, it is an ultimate sanction because then you've got no sway whatsoever. Um, Gita, does it work though? I think that divestment at some stage will become an important tool. But right now, 
It's just not. There are so many abundant sources of capital, whether you're talking about fixed income markets or equity markets, that a single asset manager choosing to divest a, a holding from a handful of funds is probably not going to have the, the immediate impact that people think it will. But I think over time, as these issues become much more in the forefront and there's more collective decision making around certain standards for ESG, I think that divestment will play a role. Um, and look, from even from a fidelity point of view, our approach has always been that you can't engage endlessly, that there is a role for divestment in our investment decision-making process. I think that what we're just saying is it's probably not step one and probably not step two. It, it, it comes further down the road and the impact on the companies today may not be as profound as what we'll see in a few years time. So it's an appealing um, tool at first sight, but perhaps there's much more hard work that needs to be done first to, to bring about the actual change um, that this is all about. I think that's a good place to, to leave things here um, for this episode. There's much more on Fidelity's ESG Analyst Survey online. You can pick through the full results at fidelityinternational.com. And if you want to read more on sustainable investing, don't miss our blog, ES Genius, which you can find in the same place. A big thank you to my guests, Gita Bell, Terry Raven, George Watson, and to our analysts, Alex Lang, Lulu Xiong, and Karen Smuljardi. The producer today was Seb Morton-Clark, with technical support from Alex Wilcox in London, Keith Chen, and Tommy Sue in Hong Kong. From all of us for now, though, at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.